Today we're going to spend most, the majority of our time, uh, I'm going to do a, an outline, we're going to talk about some chapters, some important chapters in the book of Matthew, and the rest of the time we're going to be doing interpretive challenges. There's a lot in this book. Interpretive challenges. And there's so many, in fact, that I was looking at Dr. Essex's notes, which I lean on really heavy for that part, and he actually said, there's so many of them, he doesn't have them all in the notes, and we're not even going to do the ones that he has in his notes. So there's quite a few of them for this book. Let's start with an outline of Matthew. Um, these outlines are on the handout I gave you last week, but I'll put them up there for you. Presentation of the king and the rejection of the king. That's a decent outline that's easy to remember. The only problem is that outline is really, well, vague. And it doesn't really help you understand what's going on in the book. What I like about this is it makes chapter 11 and 12 kind of central to the book. And chapters 11 and 12 are central to the book. And we'll talk about that when we get into the key chapters because it's in chapter 12 that the Jews finally once and for all reject Christ as their king and when you get into chapter 13 as we'll see he starts speaking to the Jews in parables so that they will hear without hearing they'll see without seeing and that's the judgment um, here's another outline it's a little bit more has a little bit more to it the beginnings, so chapter 1 is the genealogy, 2 you have his birth, 3 is his baptism, 4 is the beginning of his ministry, and then in 5 is the starting of the Sermon on the Mount, and that goes all the way through 20. Um, the only thing I don't like about this one is it says rejection here, starting in chapter 21, the rejection actually started, you could say it started all the way back, began in chapter 10, so I don't know that I, I would accept that one, but passion would certainly be correct. And then the last chapter is the resurrection. Um, most classes, I put all of the Bible verses up on the screen for you. Today, I didn't do that. So grab your Bibles. We're going to be going through the book. I'd like you to try to get, get to know the book of Matthew. And one of the best ways to do that is to have your Bible open and flip along with me. Has anyone studied the book of Matthew like in depth before? One? I probably have, but I'm too old to remember. Okay. Define in depth. Yeah. Define in depth uh, more than a few passing sermons. Okay. Key chapters. First one is chapter four. Chapter four, you have the temptation. Jesus is baptized in chapter three. At the end of chapter three, chapter four starts with the temptation in the wilderness. He calls his first disciples. Chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they were brought to him. All who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from every and from beyond the Jordan. What do you notice about those regions there? They're not in the U.S. They're not in the U.S. Good. That is true. That is true. 
You notice those were all within Israel? Right. And that's an important thing that we need to understand is that when Jesus comes in the book of Matthew, he's presented as king. That presentation starts to the Jews first. And from 1 through 12, it's calling the Jews to repentance. It's calling them to repent and believe. That's the message that John came preaching in uh, Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to prove he is the king. He came to prove that he is their king, and he was offering them the kingdom. The kingdom promised in the Old Testament. We'll talk about the kingdom a little bit later today. He was promising them that kingdom if you would repent. And the offer was made to the Jews for them to accept it. Verse 25 of chapter 4, large crowds followed him. You need to understand that when you look in the Gospels and you see large crowds, that's usually not a good thing. The large crowds, uh, if you go into the book of Mark, you follow through the book of Mark, large crowds, large crowds. It even says at the end of chapter 7, they were astonished by his teaching. They loved hearing him teach because he was one teaching with authority. He was healing people. He was doing miracles. But it would eventually be the crowds that demanded his death. And these crowds started following him from the very start. And it is those crowds that show up in chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he has this large crowd of people that's following him. His disciples are with them. Jesus sees the crowd, he goes up the mountain, his disciples follow him up there, and the crowds follow the disciples. We have two people in the audience, two groups. There's the crowds, and there are his disciples. Chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 5 is one of those chapters that if, if you don't read it very often, you should. There's a key thing that I want you guys to see in chapter 5. Here you have the Son of God teaching. And I want you to notice what he does. Look down at um, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told. And then he quotes scripture. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said. And then he quotes scripture. Verse 31. It was said. And then he quotes scripture. Verse 33. Again, you have heard. And he quotes scripture. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said. He keeps going back and quoting scriptures. Six times in this chapter. He goes to the Old Testament and says, This is what you have heard. But notice what he says right after each of those. Go back to verse 22. Verse 21 is, you have heard. Verse 22, but I say to you. Verse 28, but I say to you. Verse 32, but I say to you. Verse 34, but I say to you. I'm not going to go through the rest of them, but you see the point. He takes the Old Testament. This is what you have heard. Now, let me help you understand what that actually means. And I say to you, you have the Son of God teaching and proclaiming the Word of God to people. 
chapter 6 and 7, he goes on with his teaching. End of chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. What astonished them the most was that he was teaching with authority. Anybody know how the rabbis used to teach? Did the rabbis stand up and say, I say to you? What'd they say? Right, right. Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so said this. Rabbi so-and-so said this. And it was all building off the tradition of previous rabbis. That's the kind of teaching that they were used to hearing. And Jesus comes and says, you have heard it said, and he quotes scripture, and then he turns around and says, but I say to you, completely different. And they recognize that he's one teaching with authority that they have never seen before. And that's what astonishes them about the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 8, you'll notice chapter 8 is a whole bunch of miracles. Chapters 8 and 9, he just starts performing miracles. Why do you think Matthew puts these miracles right here? Because what comes after that is he has a demon because he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Okay. So he's, he's setting it up to go, look all these things he did. Okay. So it could be a setup for the, the ultimate rejection in chapter 12? He's also proving Confirms his authority. Yeah. Confirms his authority. Good. Did I was you have to say it? This is significant teaching with a lot of authority. And so it's a confirmation of that. Right. You know, not everybody can teach like that and it be accepted. Right. Chapters 8 and 9, he proves that he has the authority. He proves that he has the authority over disease because he cleanses a leper. He, he cures Peter's mother-in-law. He casts out a demon in, in 8.28. He heals a paralytic. He has authority to do miracles. And he proves his authority in chapters 8 and 9. Not only does he teach well, not only does he teach with authority, but he has the ability and the authority to command demons and to command sickness and disease. The very thing that the Old Testament prophets said he would do. Chapter 10, we're going to skip ahead here because we're trying to stick with the key chapters. He sends out the twelve. Would someone read chapter 10? Um... Verses 5 and 6. Go ahead. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep in the house of Israel. Who's he being called to go to? Jews. He's being called to go to the Jews. His disciples are going to the Jews. He came as their king. He was to set up their kingdom. And they are being sent out, and they are to go to the Jews. They are not to go to the Gentiles. They are not to go to Samaria, as we learn in the introduction. Samaritans were essentially Gentiles. He, they are to go to 
the Jews. Um, chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And John the Baptist is a little confused. He knows he's the forerunner to the Messiah. But John's in prison. Why would that be confusing to John? Yeah, the king is here. The Messiah is here. And these Romans are still in charge. Oh, I get you. Okay. I thought you were saying he was in prison before he baptized. Yeah. Yeah, so his, the baptism of Christ was in three, the end of three. So he's already baptized Christ. He's been out baptizing a lot of people. He's already sent, started sending his disciples to Christ. Now he's in prison. Okay, now I can answer the question. <laughs> He's confused because the king is here, the Messiah is here. Where's the kingdom? Was I wrong about you, Jesus? Did I get this wrong? And so, chapter 11. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why would he think that he got it wrong when he was able to recognize Jesus in the room? Well, we'll, we'll answer that here. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Are you really the guy we're expecting? Are you the one who's supposed to usher in this kingdom? Because it doesn't seem like it's happening right now. Jesus answered him, verse 4, Go and report to John what you hear and see. He's answering to John's disciples so they can take the message back to John. Verse 5, what do they see? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All the promises of the Old Testament prophets are being fulfilled in Christ. Everything the prophets said, the Messiah, the one who would usher in this kingdom, everything that they said he should do, Jesus is now doing. I'm exactly who you think I am. Did you have something? I think he just expected judgment instead of healing. Yes. There should have been a, there is a judgment that comes before the kingdom comes. Which is why John came said, repent. And he asked the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because there is a judgment that comes before the kingdom comes in. And John is expecting this judgment to occur and expecting the Romans to be kicked out. This is our kingdom. Our king is here. Why aren't we doing something? John believes it, but a lot of the Jews don't. Chapter 11, verse um, 20. Then he, that would be Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Most of the cities rejected him. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. These miracles were not here so you can have a good show. They were here to prove and validate the message preached. You should have believed. And in fact, he says in the next couple of verses to Capernaum, 
that if Sodom and Gomorrah would have had those miracles done in them, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. And they would still be around at the time of Jesus' ministry. Ouch. That would have hurt. Into chapter 11, verse 25, I praise you. Well, let's actually jump to verse 28. Verse 28, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Did he say, Come all you Jews to me? Did he say, Come to me, house of Israel? He said, Come all. The invitation is going to be extended out. And it's no longer going to focus solely on the house of Israel. Why would that happen? Because of chapter 12. Chapter 12, starting in verse 22, you have a demoniac, a man who's demon-possessed. And he was blind, and he was mute. And this demon-possessed man who could not see and could not speak is brought to Jesus. And in verse 22, all it says is, He was brought to Jesus, he healed him, so the mute man spoke and saw. That's the description of the miracle. The crowds are still there. Verse 23, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Who's the son of David? Why would they say that? Son of David. He's in the line of the king. This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? When the Pharisees heard this, they said this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. I can see this being natural to even John the Baptist, uh, that they, you know, they expected a little something really different. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my question would be: If Jesus changes our, our hearts, why didn't he change their hearts? Why didn't Jesus change their hearts? Um, the only answer I can give for the same reason is that he doesn't change the hearts of people today. Well, how do you become knowledgeable and become, want to be a, am I missing something on salvation? Because you have to have a changed heart, mm-hmm. which is given yeah. to you by the Lord, not yeah. something that you select. Right. So, yes, ma'am. Yeah, so they always expected a physical kingdom. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, To your question, I'll get to you in just a moment, Lance. To your question, the answer to that is the Bible says, yes, salvation and faith is a gift from God, and it places all of that on God, but it also places a big part of that also on your believing or refusing to believe. And that gets into the question of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to parse that out for you other than to say, is God sovereign? Yes. Are you responsible for believing? Yes. And I can't give no, much more. Yeah. I can't give much more of an answer than that. Yes. Is, oh, I'm sorry. I think there is an element where, where God does do that for the disciples when 
Peter finally confesses who Christ is truly. Yeah. And Peter gives that correct answer. Jesus yeah. says, blessed are you. And he said, uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this, but my Father who is in heaven. Good. The only way these disciples come to a full knowledge of who mm-hmm. Christ is, and I don't think they're even there yet, even though they're with him, ministering with him, seeing him cast out demons. There is a, I think, a growing, and it goes all the way to right. Pentecost when they receive the Spirit, right. who Christ really is. Right. And so I think he, not, you know, it's hard to define what that is, but I think God does reveal more of who Christ is to the disciples over time. Yeah. Well, especially when it comes back, you know, he seals it with every one of those disciples that he is Lord. Yeah. Lance, did you have some? If you go back to uh, chapter 11, right, the couple verses right before you uh, you gave the come all. Mm-hmm. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no and whom anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So now he's not talking about little Israel kingdom. He's like, I, I created this whole thing. I am the king of this whole thing. Yeah. So had he had he given Jews faith? And they accepted his little reign of that little postage stamp called Israel. He wouldn't get the glory he deserves. Okay. Help. I mean. Yeah. So he is sovereign over all, and so salvation is something he chooses. But you're still responsible for making that decision. The Jews here um, are not only rejecting salvation in Christ; they're rejecting their king. They're rejecting the kingdom that they had been promised. They had everything that they needed to. Believe that Christ is who He said He is. He was doing everything the Old Testament promised He would do. Here I want you to notice in Matthew 12, 22, notice nobody denied the miracle. Nobody said, oh, that's a magician's trick. Everybody understood it was a miracle. Even the scribes and the Pharisees who were accusing Him of doing it the wrong way, or who didn't like Him, said, look, he did cast out a demon. He just did it by the power of Satan. Everybody knew this was a miracle. It was undisputed. And they still rejected him. Which is a rebuke to people today who say signs and wonders are necessary for people to believe. Because Jesus did a whole bunch of signs and wonders, and they still rejected him, and they still said he was working by the power of Satan. We'll talk about that a little bit more, the unpardonable sin. We'll get to that later today. Chapter 13. Jesus begins to speak in parables. Verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And the disciples were a little confused by this. They didn't understand, you know, before you were just teaching plainly and clearly. And now you're teaching in parables. Why are you teaching in parables? Verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? Answer, verse 11, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. The parables, we'll talk about them and their purpose, but ultimately the parables serves as a function of judgment. And he quotes Isaiah You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And now this message is going to start going out to people outside of Israel. 
Uh, jump forward, chapter 23. This judgment on Israel is pictured in the leadership. Chapter 23 is the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. I think most of you have probably read that. Chapters 24 and 25, we'll talk about them here in a little while, is the Olivet Discourse. Um, on the handout that I gave you last week, there is a breakout of the five teaching blocks within Matthew. Some people try to outline the entire book based on the teachings of Christ. This is one of those five teaching blocks. The Sermon on the Mount is another one. Um... Yeah, and this is all talking about, well, this is part of the interpretive challenge. Is this talking about something that's already happened, or is this talking about something that's going to happen? That's the big question. Uh, after that, you have the pictures of judgment there. 26, the plot to kill Jesus, the Lord's Supper, Peter's denial, chapter 27, Judas, the crucifixion, chapter 28, you have... The resurrection, end of chapter 28. This is the well-known passage. Verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been grant given to me in heaven and on earth. Go there and go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No longer is this message re restricted only to Israel. No longer is it restricted only to the Jews. It's now to go to the ends of the earth because they rejected their king. Had they accepted their king, he would have ushered in the kingdom right then and there. All right, any questions? That's a very quick run through. Was that helpful? Okay. Good, yeah, good. So that's a good point. Abraham was promised that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You go into Galatians 4 and you find out that Abraham preached the gospel beforehand. It is through the Messiah, through this seed, that all the nations would be blessed. And so, yes, this is the practical means by which God brings about his ultimate plan of redeeming humanity, not just Israel. All right, we're on to the interpretive challenges. Uh, go back to chapter 2, verse 23. This is right at the end of the birth narrative. Um, just for some context, let's go back up to verse 21. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And he came and he lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. That's our first interpretive challenge. Why is this a challenge? Yeah. There's no specific verse. 
it says he would be called a Nazarene, but I'll let you keep going. I don't. I already said, heard what Essex said about it. Oh, okay. You're you're like three steps ahead of me. Okay, that's the problem. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say anything about him being from Nazarene. So what is he referring to when he said the prophets say that he will be from Nazareth? He will be called a Nazarene. Well, some people say, well, Jesus was a Nazarite. Nazarene, Nazarite, sounds very familiar. That must be what he means. Okay. Um, mark your spot there. Judges 13. Numbers 6 will give you um, the full rundown. But Judges 13, 5 and 7 will give us some information on what is a Nazarite. What do they vow? Judges 13, 5. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. A Nazarite vowed to never cut or shave their head, their hair, or their beard. Verse 7, But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. A Nazarite also vowed to never drink wine or fermented grape juice. But um, as someone just said, there's a problem here. Matthew eleven nineteen, the Pharisees called him a drunkard. Well, if you never drink wine, how are they going to call you a drunkard? He also on the Last Supper said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. And the fruit of the vine has to be a reference to wine because they didn't have a way to cleanse and purify grape juice. It would have gone bad and they would have gotten sick. So they had to ferment it to drink it. It would have had to be wine. So there's really no evidence that Jesus refused to cut his hair or trim his beard, and there's no evidence that Jesus refused to drink wine. John the Baptist is said to never drink wine. He drank only water. It's never said of Jesus. And in fact, we have the exact opposite where we find Jesus at the Last Supper, and he's drinking wine. So the odds are he probably didn't take a Nazarite vow, and this probably doesn't mean he was a Nazarite. Um... This one's a little confusing. Jesus was the branch. Um, best I can tell, this is a play on words. And at best, it's a very discreet allusion to Jesus being the branch. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 1, he says, it says the Messiah will be the branch. Um, it's also in Jeremiah and Zechariah. I, I think this is a stretch. It's a play on words, and it's doesn't really fit any part of the context. The last one, I think, is the one that has the most likelihood of being um, the correct answer. Go to Matthew 1. Matthew 1, verse 22. I want you to see something here. Matthew 1, verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes scripture. Matthew 2, verse 5. 
And they said to him in uh, Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, singular, one prophet, and then he quotes scripture. Verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. One guy, and then he quotes the scripture. Verse 17, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. One prophet, and he quotes scripture. Now look at verse 23. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He's not referring to what one prophet said. He's not referring to one specific passage. He's referring to the message of all the prophets. What was the message of all the prophets? Psalm 22 is a great place to go. Psalm 22 is what Jesus quoted. You'll notice verse 1, Jesus quoted this on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. He's despised. He's a reproach to men. The other passages, I'll make these slides available to you online. These other passages, um, I guess we can do one more. Let's do Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. It doesn't say that this king is going to come and going to be loved. He's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be obscure. People aren't going to know who he really is. When he says here this was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken, what he's saying is this is going to be, he's from Nazarene. That is, he's from a place that nobody likes, that's unheard of. Nazareth was a little town filled with Gentiles in Galilee. And if you want to get an idea for what people thought of Nazareth, John chapter 1. Anybody know where I'm going here? Uh-huh. You guys are sharp. Nathaniel said to him, "Can any, verse 46, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To be from Nazareth was not a compliment. To be from Jerusalem would have been a compliment. But from Nazareth, no. When that says that he will be called a Nazarene, that is to say he will be Viewed, upon, viewed with despise and contempt, and people will not see him as being stately and wonderful. That's the idea. Does that make sense? Everybody follow me? All right. The next one. 
I'm sorry, I know that's small, but I had to try to fit all of this onto one page. What does he mean by the kingdom? Anybody can tell why this is important? Jesus is coming as the king. The king rules over a kingdom, and we need to understand what he means by kingdom. And there's a lot of views on this, and I don't have all these memorized, and you won't have them all memorized either, so please don't try. Okay, Just understand that they are there. The first one, primary, personal, and individual. These are not my titles for these. These are Dr. Essex titles. Um, Luke 17, 21 is where this issue comes up. Luke 17, 21. I'll start in verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, notice they're expecting the kingdom to come. He answered them and said to them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? In your midst. This first view says that the kingdom um, enters into the heart of the individual when they respond to the teachings of Christ. And this isn't even saying that the kingdom is spiritual. This is saying that the kingdom is nothing more than a set of moral or ethical beliefs. That if you embrace these moral and ethical beliefs, you are now in the kingdom, or the kingdom is now in you. I have a hard time believing that's what the Pharisees and that's what the disciples were thinking when they asked about the kingdom. Because they all had embraced those ethical beliefs, or at least the disciples did. So I have a hard time believing that is what he's talking about. There, the, the kingdom is just moralistic obedience. The next one is a future eschatological. That's a really fancy way of saying it. This view, is these first three are all from liberals, so this one's probably going to be offensive to you. <laughs> um, the advocates of this say that Jesus came believing that he was the Messiah. But Jesus was mistaken. He, he wasn't actually the Messiah, which is why he didn't usher in the physical kingdom people were expecting. And he was just mistaken, and we just need to understand that, and he just got it wrong. Which is why the kingdom isn't here today. He's a good man, but he wasn't God. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great book, by the way. So that one I think we will quickly dismiss. Uh, realize eschatological. Uh, another way of saying this is restoration. This comes from a guy named C.H. Dodd which you don't need to know that, just be aware of it. Um, Matthew 12, 28 is where this idea comes from. We, we looked at this briefly, 12, 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In this view, there is no eschatological or end times element to the kingdom. The kingdom is wherever Jesus is. And if Jesus is in you, the kingdom is in you. If Jesus is on earth, the kingdom is on earth. Wherever Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. 
And so if you're in Christ, you are in the kingdom. And they use Matthew 12, 28 to make that assessment. I don't think, again, I don't think that's what the Jews were expecting. I don't think that's what the Old Testament promised. How do we understand this phrase, the kingdom of God has come upon you? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that when he says the kingdom of God has come upon you, he's talking about his power to bring in the kingdom. Up until this point, we'll see this in a little bit, up until this point it's been the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now it's the kingdom of God is upon you. I just proved I have the power to usher in the kingdom. I just proved I am the king. The kingdom is here, it's me. And I can bring in the kingdom and I just proved it. You don't have to take this phrase and turn it into the kingdom is wherever Jesus is. I don't think that's necessary. Yes? Just a comment there. They also didn't have revelations at that time. They didn't have the complete New Testament. That is true. You know, the only thing they had was the Old Testament. So I, I would imagine there's an element of confusion until Jesus allows them to understand. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's... I don't think... As far as what what, this, what the kingdom was, I don't think there was a lot of confusion at that time. I think everyone had a pretty consistent view of what the kingdom would be, because if you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about the kingdom constantly, repeatedly, and it describes it in vivid detail. And that's what everybody was expecting. Right. Right. So, and I think that's where that that's where the confusion comes in. They weren't confused about the nature of the kingdom. They were confused about how the kingdom would actually show up. And these views that there the kingdom was going to be spiritual or the kingdom is just a moral ethic, these all came much later. But in that time, the confusion was not what is the nature of the kingdom. It's the confusion was when is the kingdom coming. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, okay. I think it says the same thing that I just said, that they, they didn't have the whole story. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll accept it. Um, two forms or two aspects of the kingdom. This is really popular today. Um, this comes from a guy named George Ladd. He wrote a book, I think in the 1960s, called The Presence of the Future. And Ladd said there are two elements to the kingdom. There's a present element, which is spiritual. And you are a citizen of the kingdom, and you inherit some of the blessings of the kingdom right now. But the full manifestation of the kingdom and all the physical blessings, those have not yet been received. So the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully manifested. This is the idea of already, not yet. Which I think even guys like Thomas Schreiner accept this idea. And in that sense, the kingdom is both spiritual and physical. Uh, I think MacArthur holds to a form of this. That the kingdom is both spiritual and physical. There's spiritual elements of it today, and there will be a physical element of it later. You know, I think that's, that's, that's a, 
I don't know, game changer for me because I've always thought that whether being taught or not. Yeah. So there, there is, it's not even a game changer. I don't know how to say it. But I mean, it, it's in me already that that's what it's going to be oh. without studying yeah. it. So I think God reveals things to us that, like the Trinity, you could, you can explain it all you want. You can't do it properly. <laughs> okay. Um, the Old Testament prophesied kingdom. When this is saying, when Matthew uses the phrase "the kingdom," he's referring to what the Old Testament referred to as the kingdom. Um, we're going to give four reasons for that. First reason: there's no explanation of the kingdom. If you go into Matthew three, we looked at this earlier. He says, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." He doesn't explain it any further. He doesn't say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, by the way, the kingdom you heard about in the Old Testament, it's changed. It's different. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. Or it's going to turn into a moral ethic. He doesn't explain any of it. He just says the kingdom that you've been waiting for, that's at hand. The message was restricted to Israel. It was restricted to Israel because this was a promise made to Israel. And we looked at that verse, so I'm not going to go back and read it, where he sends out the 12 in Matthew 10, 5 through 6. Only Israel would have known what the kingdom would be. They're the ones who received the promises. Another reason, Matthew 20, uh, 20 through 21. And we've hinted at this a couple times. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. They were expecting a physical, literal kingdom to come. Where her two sons can sit, one on his left one on his right ruling and reigning with the Messiah. Last one. Let's look at these. Um, we've already talked about 3.2. Go back to Matthew 4. 3.2 says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 10, verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 12. He goes from the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is now here. I can usher it in today. But even though he says that, Matthew 25, verse 34. Let's back up verse 31 for just some context. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, when is that? His second coming. And all the angels said to him, 
uh, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put on he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When is that happening? Sometime in the future at judgment. That is talking about a literal physical kingdom, just as it was promised in the Old Testament. And it connects that physical kingdom with a judgment that is coming. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. But the things that they were concerned about when Jesus was among them, that they were confused about, and this has been since Jesus has died and risen and is ascended. So we have a historical record of this is what we expected, and this is what actually happened as recorded by these men through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think we have to take that into consideration when we were pondering some of the questions the same way we do we look forward to the book of Revelation. There are things future that we consider, we think about, we talk about, but because they haven't happened, that's the most we can do. But for them, it has happened, and now they're not only telling us, this is what the Old Testament said, but this is what actually happened in the Yeah. So, yes, there are historical, this is historical in its context, but in that history, Jesus turns to them and says, you will receive the kingdom in the future, right? Exactly. And, and so, yes, I agree with you in that sense. Yeah. So this is a historical record, and it can be trusted for what it says. Exactly. And there are some things that did occur there. And I think we'll talk about 24 and 25, these two chapters, whether they're historical chapters or whether they're dealing with the future. And that's a huge issue on interpretation, right? Um, but I, I would take 24 and 25 to be referring to something that's in the future. I'll just tip my hand there. And I know there's some people who disagree, but I, I think, it, it, did I get that correct? Okay. You did. Well, my real point was, uh-huh. whatever confusion we have, some of it is answered because they have the before and after picture. Before mm-hmm. Christ comes, and he's saying, I'm Messiah, and he does the things that prove he's the Messiah. Well, they have the same kind of questions going forward because they didn't understand. Who ever heard of a woman having a baby and never having Right. Agreed. Yes. So there are some areas of this that are still shrouded in mystery, um, like you know timing. When does it occur? Um, the best we can say this happens in the future. Um, I would say out of these views, this last one is probably the best one to look at, that the Old Testament promise of a kingdom is the same as what Matthew is referring to. When Matthew talks about the kingdom, he's talking about what was promised in the Old Testament. And if you want to know what the kingdom looks like, you just go through the Old Testament and see what it, is, what it says. Oh my goodness, we're going to run out of time. Okay, to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3, verse 15, this is at the baptism I'm going to speed up if that's okay with you guys. Verse 15, Jesus is being baptized. 
He goes to John. What is important here is that the people going to John are sinners. And they go to John, they confess their sins, they repent, and then they're baptized. Jesus comes to John and wants to be baptized. And John says, wait, 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 I have need to be baptized by you. I have sin, you don't have sin. Why do you need to be baptized? And Jesus says, I need to be baptized because it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by fulfill all righteousness? Some people say that this is Jesus identifying with the godly remnant of Israel. That is to say, he's just trying to have something of an act of solidarity. You guys are getting baptized, and I'm going to get baptized with you. I don't think that works. He didn't need to be baptized to be in solidarity with the people. He ate with them. He drank with them. He spoke with them. He lived among them. I don't think baptism is really going to help there. Another view, this is Jesus' anticipation of his baptism of death, by which he secured righteousness for sinners. This views his baptism as anticipating his ultimate death. The problem is, he said that it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. How is that doing anything? And Jesus actually did die later in the book, so why does he need the baptism here? Yes? Well, two reasons. Uh, one would be that he would fulfill prophecy, and the second reason, that's when he, uh, he, he got the Holy Spirit uh, with the dove and all that. Is that correct? Okay. Uh, yeah, that is one view. Um, those, he did get the Spirit at this point, or the Spirit did descend upon him at that point. Um, I don't, I don't know that I. Well, I don't know if that's one of the reasons that he was baptized. Yeah. yeah. Well, whose baptism did you have? Well, we just know about the baptism of John. Oh, here, let me explain to you the, this baptism. The baptism of John was just a need for repentance, but not empowered by the Spirit. Yeah. So Christian baptism and the baptism of John are different. Yes. Um, yeah, the other views say Jesus' reception of a messianic anointing. I don't think that's going to work. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says anything about the Messiah being anointed through baptism. Uh, Jesus did this to submit to the law of Moses. Nothing in the law of Moses commands baptism. It's not necessary. This last view, Jesus did this as a voluntary submission to all the obligations instituted by God. New Testament believers are expected to be baptized. Yes? I, I, just, knew, I just knew that when he was being baptized, all three were present at the time. Right. The Father, yeah. the Son there, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's a great place to go for the Trinity. Great place to go for the Trinity. I think this last one is probably the best view. This is Jesus, Jesus demonstrating that he is committed to following the will of his Father completely and fully. And while he doesn't have sin and has no need to be baptized in that sense, he's going to do it because this is what the Father expects. Somehow I, I think there's a missing part because that's when he re received the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That, that has to be somewhere in the key reason for him to be baptized. Yeah. I, I think I know where our confusion is. This is not asking what's the reason for his baptism. Oh, okay. This is asking what is... What does he mean here by fulfill all righteousness? So there are other reasons for the baptism. Okay. Um, 
but the question here is, what is he trying to say when he says to fulfill all righteousness? And the answer there, I think the best answer would be that last one. And I'm not dogmatic here. I'm just, that's where I, that's where I would end up. Um, Sermon on the Mount. The question here is, what's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Why does Jesus have it? What are we supposed to get out of it? How are we supposed to use it? One says it's the way to get saved. You read through the Sermon on the Mount, and it'll bring you to salvation. The problem there is, as we discussed at the beginning, the people that were there for it, there was the crowd, and there were the disciples. The message was primarily to the disciples, not to the whole crowd. And the disciples had already made the decision that they were going to follow Christ, that they were going to submit to Christ. So I don't think that is why he's doing this. Another view is the penitential approach. This is MacArthur's view. Jesus interprets the law, which we discussed, and that is for the purpose of leading someone to recognize their own sinfulness. And this has the same problem as the first one. These are already the disciples. These are already people who have turned to Christ. They already recognize their sinfulness. Third view is the ecclesiastical approach. This views the church as being, this, this is the constitution for the church, and you enter into the kingdom by being obedient to the Sermon on the Mount. This is a very liberal view. Kingdom ethics, this is... The moral recipe for... Yeah. This is how to be sanctified, and it's, it believes in a spiritual manifestation of the kingdom. And by being obedient to this, you can be sanctified and get right with God. There's the kingdom manifesto or the constitution approach. This is a dispensational view. Yes, I'm a dispensationalist, but not this kind of dispensationalist. They say that the Sermon on the Mount is only for the people living in the kingdom. It's only for when we get into the kingdom. The problem with that is on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6... Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. What does he teach them to pray for? Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. If they're already in the kingdom, why are they praying for the kingdom come? This has to be people praying who are not yet in the kingdom. And then the last one, the interim approach. That is to say that the people who pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount are the believers who are following Christ and they are behaving in a way that is consistent with their status as citizens of the kingdom, and they are following these instructions until the kingdom actually comes. Does that make sense? I think that is probably the best answer. Can you say one more thing? Yeah. Interim is saying there's a time period between now and the kingdom arriving, and there are people who are heirs of the kingdom, who will receive the kingdom, and they are behaving in a way consistent with how they are going to live in the kingdom. And that's what these instructions are. I want to obey. How? How do I better obey? Right here. Right. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't even understand why this is an interpretive challenge. Like, it's just Christ, you know, fully explaining. It doesn't seem like a challenge. It seems yeah. like it's for the benefit of Christians to learn and grow. And there's an element of all, you know, the penitential, there's an element of that where you... It's, it's a it's more revealing of what the law is doing within us. And so yeah. There's elements of this, but I don't even see why it's a challenge to know what to do with it. You just take it and leave it and follow it. Yeah. A lot of these, like I said, don't try to memorize all this. 
just be aware that there are people who make these arguments. That's why we're going through this. I have several more that we'll do, but we'll pick those up next week because it's already 10 o'clock and we're, we're over time. So let me close this out in prayer and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you we can come together uh, to study your word and study the book of Matthew. And uh, we just ask that you would help us to be more obedient as citizens of the kingdom and that we will keep our eyes focused on the return of Christ and not on this world. And we ask this in his name. Amen.